where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. Faith without works is dead. If you are not living out your faith, the Lord will judge you as having no faith, and that should chill people to their core. Everybody, Michael Thiessen here, and today I am joined with author Eric Metaxas. Eric, it's great to have you back on, and we're excited to talk about your new book, Letter to the American Church. But I want to kind of start our discussion back with an earlier book you've written about William Wilberforce, and I know that those two topics will likely blend together, but uh, thanks for coming on, and so looking forward to this discussion. Well, it's, uh, it's my privilege and the Wilberforce book and my Bonhoeffer book and my Luther book prepared me to write this book, Letter to the American Church. It's one of these bizarre things that I realize it's God's hand because I didn't plan to write about those three people and have it make any particular sense. But I now realize rather miraculously those three stories created uh, a, a narrative that applies to where we are now. So the book Letter to the American Church draws heavily on Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer especially, but the the Luther story is also in there. So it's kind of kind of amazing to see God's hand in your life retroactively, you know, when I I didn't plan it. When I was writing the Wilberforce book titled Amazing Grace, I just had no idea that in the future uh, I would be applying those lessons to where we are in in, in America in the West today. So before we get started, I just want to thank you again in, in these historical biographies. You, you, you draw analogies throughout each book where you, you bring up an illustration, to a very modern illustration in the midst of walking through what the, you know, the description of what the, these historical figures have gone through. And it really helps you bridge the context of basically probably what you're writing about with letter to the American church. It just brings it into a very, Oh, he was going through that and the language feels different and the history feels different, but that's a very similar situation to what I'm walking through today. There. One of the things that I have learned about writing these stories, uh, these are true stories is how dramatically similar our situation is to theirs. We tend to think of, you know, past history as it's another world. It's a mythical world. It's not. Uh, human beings exactly uh, like us uh, were involved in those things. And the battle, the Wilberforce story, for folks who don't know, my first biography, before I wrote the Bonhoeffer book, I wrote a book called Amazing Grace, William Wilberforce and the Heroic Campaign to End the Slave Trade. And because of his Christian faith, Wilberforce in the late 1700s and early 1800s led the battle in parliament. He was the hero saying the Bible says slavery and treating human beings like this in the slave trade is an abomination. We've got to make it illegal in England. And he led the battle to make it illegal all over Europe because of his Christian faith. And it was a huge battle. And I think today the battle, uh, for the unborn. There are all kinds of things that you just think, well, we're going through the same thing now. Everyone says it's normal, but the Bible says it's wrong. How do we deal with that? How do we engage in politics? So that was the first book, uh, the first biography that I wrote. And when I wrote it, I had no dream that in the future um, I would be drawing on these stories to inform where we are now uh, in the United States, uh, in the West. I, I, I had no clue. And it's kind of amazing that God led me to write that book about that story because I, I realized it prepared me for where we are now. So a few parallels that really jumped out at me, and I'm sure that we can dig into these topics. Number one, the the cultural malaise of the church, the 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 um, the, the lukewarm, the passivity of the church, many many clergy. 
um, resisting Methodism and resisting the evangelical movement of the Great Awakening. And so you you have you have within Wilberforce's life this the, the, this description that you that you draw forth, where he goes to live with his aunt and uncle, and he has an awakening to. Uh, most likely a, a, some type of young conversion, but although we talked well, about his conversion no, they, later on. We have to give the history because most people aren't going to un- understand this because I didn't understand this. I mean, we have to – whenever I'm talking about Wilberforce and about my book Amazing Grace – and by the way, it's a very inspiring read uh, because he succeeds. It's this tremendous campaign, this battle, and he succeeds by the grace of God. So it's an inspiring story for those of us fighting uh, for God's values – uh, in, uh, you know, in our time, but just to give the context, and this is, you see this over and over again, there's the church and then there's the church. There are people who claim to be Christians and my new book letter to the American church is specifically aiming at this subject that there are people who say, Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a church person. I go to church, but God always has a holy remnant. God is always trying to get people to be real about their faith, not just to say it or to, or to sort of go through the motions. And Wilberforce in his day was living at a time when the cultural elites were anti-Christian. And so you had this movement, uh, the Methodists, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, we think of George Whitfield. The first great awakening was working classes, really. Um, and it was people being born again. It was really something they hadn't seen. Everybody went to church, Church of England, you know, but they weren't born again. They weren't serious about Jesus. They didn't have a personal relationship. So John Wesley and George Whitfield and a number of others, they, they led what we came to know as the Methodist movement. These are people preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ outdoors, uh, anywhere, and people coming to faith, people weeping, forgiveness of sins. You weren't getting that in the dead Church of England, just like you're not getting that in a lot of dead uh, American churches today. You know, you go through the motions and then you kind of go on with your life. So something amazing happened in England. And of course, I write about it in my book, Amazing Grace. But it created a remnant, a holy remnant of people who were dedicated to doing God's will, to fighting for his purposes. And that led them to lead the battle against the slave trade, one of the most wicked horrors we could possibly imagine. And so when people say today, and this is what I talk about in my new book, Letter to the American Church, where they say, oh, you shouldn't be political. I think, well, excuse me, William Wilberforce was a politician. And because of his faith in Jesus, He led the battle in parliament, in politics, also in the wider culture, but ultimately in parliament to bring the slave trade to an end. It was a wicked thing. And he said, because of my faith in Jesus, these these strangers, these Africans are my uh, – I am my brother's keeper. God will hold me accountable for how we treat them. And I'm going to use my power in politics and in the culture to be a voice for them. And of course, he succeeded in 1807, this happy, glorious story. And we celebrate it. We all say, well, of course, slavery is bad. I'm glad he did it. But today, in the new book, Letter to the American Church, I talk about today when somebody says to a Christian, oh, you're being political. You're advocating for your values. You should keep that separate. Just preach the gospel. What garbage? That is not biblical. Why do we applaud William Wilberforce for ending the slave trade because of his faith in Jesus, because of his fidelity to what the scriptures taught? Why do we say, oh, that's a good thing? If I was alive, then I would have done the same thing. Are you doing it today? Are you today advocating for God's values, not just with regard to the unborn, but with regard to the cultural Marxism that's destroying lives, an atheist worldview that's affecting everything, transgender, whatever you want to look at in America. um, And I'm speaking as 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 a, you know, American citizen in the U.S., but this applies, of course, all throughout the West, whether in Canada or Europe. Are you advocating for what God says or or are you letting people silence you? By saying, oh, you're, you're just being political. You're just a culture warrior. Just preach the gospel. What gospel? If there are people enslaved, if there are uh, the unborn being murdered, uh, if the poor are suffering because of socialist policies, am I not to speak up? I am my brother's keeper. And so the core of, of the book Letter to the American Church, which is the shortest book I've ever written, 
uh, draws on the story of Wilberforce, draws on the story much more of Bonhoeffer and says that there's no such thing as, oh, that's political and this is gospel. We're supposed to care about truth. And if you care about the truth of God, you know, Jesus said it would be better if a millstone be hung around your neck and you'd be cast into the heart of the sea than that you should make these one of these little ones to stumble. He cares about people. God cares about people and he calls us to care about people. And sometimes that means we're going to be political or we're going to do things. We're going to be accused of being political. Why? Because we're obeying God. And so this false distinction that you have to stick to gospel related issues. Let me tell you, slavery is a gospel related issue. The unborn, that's a gospel related issue. And down the line, all of these things bear on what is called truth. And so what I, what I try to say in the new book letter to the American church is basically that many of us have bought a lie that we're not supposed to do anything but quote unquote, preach the gospel. That's not scriptural. There's something twisted about that. And when evil rises up as it does today, kind of the point of the book is that what happened in Bonhoeffer's day, German pastors were silent. They said, oh, we're just going to preach the gospel. We're not going to get political Romans 13. What, what that opened the door to was hell on earth. And I, I wrote this book to say, we are there right now. And if we don't speak up now, if we don't draw on the examples of Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer and live out our faith now, we are bringing judgment upon this nation and upon the world. God will hold us responsible. He does hold his church responsible. This episode has been brought to you by Resistance Coffee. With Christmas fast approaching, our friends over at Resistance Coffee have a wonderful gift idea for the Christmas holiday. Not only does their coffee taste fantastic, but you can also use a little bit of your money to fund the freedom, fight, and liberty in Canada. So look, head over to resistancecoffee.com backslash LCC and give the gift of coffee this season. So here are their two ideas, and I love this. You can purchase something called a little resistance, which is uh, two bags of coffee of your choice, one mug of your choice, a resistance gift bag and some resistance stickers all for $55 plus shipping. But those of us who want to be a part of the big boy club, we can also go over there and purchase a lot of resistance, which is four bags of coffee of your choice, two mugs of your choice, a resistance gift bag and some resistance stickers all for $95 plus free shipping. So I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but if you really love those closest to you, you're going to go get, a little resistance or a lot of resistance at resistancecoffee.com backslash LCC. Make sure to use that backslash LCC for all your purchases so that they know that we sent you. We're so excited for that partnership. So the thing that is really remarkable that I wanted to draw out was that again, what you experienced both in Bonhoeffer uh, and Wilberforce is confusion within the church. So you have yeah. you have the spiritual awakening of Wilberforce that then leads him, and he actually goes through the dualistic moment where he says, you know, no, now I have to dedicate my whole life to God. I'm going to step right. out of Parliament, and it's that monumental meeting where he is uh, encouraged by his childhood pastor. Uh, to know that this is where God has called you to be, to go into that spot public sphere uh, and to, uh, to, to represent these individuals. So he, even in his day, you had this dualism among the Christians where you had this lethargy where it's like, Hey, we, we don't get too excited about Jesus like the Methodists. And then certainly, you know, I need to live my life for God now. So I have to step out of the public sphere. And it's great okay. to see him push through that. I'm, I find it funny that you're bringing this up and I'm thinking I should be talking about this. I, you know, I give a lot of speeches on the new book letter to the American church. I'm speaking in churches. I, I don't think I've ever mentioned what you just mentioned. And it is a key, key piece to illustrate what we're talking about. B basically, again, uh, for people who don't know the story in, in my book, Amazing Grace, I tell the story of Wilberforce, who basically loses his faith. It's kind of a long, uh, it's, it's an amazing story, frankly. It's just an amazing story. But he finds his faith around age 26, and he's convinced, you just said it, he's convinced that now my whole life is going to be about Jesus, which means I guess I got to leave politics. Politics is dirty. I'm just going to go into the ministry. So he visits his childhood friend. Now, he was a little boy, 
and uh, John Newton was uh, was a man in his 40s. Now John Newton is about 60 years old. He's a famous preacher in the Church of England, but he's an evangelical. And Wilberforce goes like Nicodemus at night. He goes secretly, it's during the day, but he goes secretly to visit this, this hero that he hasn't seen in all these years, John Newton, to say, what do I do? I've been born again. I've accepted Jesus. Uh, I, I have a new life. What, what do I do? I guess I have to leave politics, right? And John Newton says, no, no. Who knows but that God put you there for such a time as this. Live your faith out in politics. You know how to navigate the world of politics. Bring your faith into politics. Don't leave politics. Don't abdicate the world of politics and the world of culture and say, I'm just going to preach the gospel. I'm That's nonsense. God calls us to everything. And some people are called, you know, to preach from a pulpit, but even those who are called to preach from a pulpit have to speak about truth and have to speak about good and evil and morality. And when you see corruption, when you see lying, when you see slavery, when you see the unborn being killed, when you see children being abused, uh, by, confused and abused by being asked, what's your gender? If you don't speak against these things, you say, oh, I'm just going to talk about theological stuff. You have no theology and you have no gospel if it doesn't touch on every sphere of life. And Wilberforce at age 26, when he visits John Newton, by, by the grace of God, John Newton says to him in 17, I guess 85 it was, says to him, no, stay in politics. Don't, don't let them shoo you out so that politics is taken over by people who don't have biblical values and it remains corrupt. Bring your faith, your salt and light into the world of politics. And it's an astonishing thing because you you see this today. I mean, you see this all over the place, depending on what kind of church you're going to or whatever. But people just say like, oh, we're just about the gospel. And you think, well, where'd you get that idea? Jesus wasn't just about the gospel. He he said things that touched on the political. So you are you holier than Jesus that you're not going to talk about this or this or this or this, and you're going to let the world go to hell because all you care about is quote unquote evangelism? You're going to be much more effective as an evangelist, if you speak about truth to people who are hungry for truth. And when they hear you speak truth on certain issues, they're going to say, you know, I could get behind that. That guy seems like he actually believes in something more than just his little pious faith. So it, it's kind of amazing in the, in the new book, Letter to the American Church, I talk a little bit about Wilberforce, but I mostly talk about Bonhoeffer because the parallel is so dramatic, but it is kind of amazing uh, how Wilberforce lived this out exactly as you said. I mean, there was a moment where he was tempted to, to leave the political. And we think to ourselves, what if he had done that? What if he had said, you know, I just want to be, I want to be this holy pietistic. I'm just going to, you know, be reading the Bible. Well, guess what? People were enslaved. People were in the slave trade. It, it, it was a wickedness beyond belief. He brought Jesus into culture, into politics and human beings' lives were saved from the slave trade, saved from slavery. I mean, it's an amazing story, and it's a story of victory. The story of Bonhoeffer, of course, is a sad story where he tries and tries and tries and ultimately fails to convince the German church to speak up against the evil of Hitler. So in, in, in one book, you get a happy story. Another one, you get a cautionary tale. Uh, and I, in my new book, Letter to the American Church, I'm pointing mostly to the cautionary tale of what happened in Germany in the 30s when the church refused to do what God was calling them to do and said, we're just going to stay in our little theological corner. And the hell that came to Germany uh, and to Europe as a result, think of this, as a result of the silence of the church, because people, leaders in the church got this wrong. They had their pietistic theological thinking and they said, well, well we don't do that. That's not our lane. That was wrong. And because of it, the judgment that fell on Germany is unlike anything we've ever seen. And that is what's happening in the United States today because of the silence of Christian leaders on all the subjects that we might talk about. So there, I want to go back to this just before we move on, because I think it's just so important. As we're calling Christians to, to, to courage, to wisdom, I'm thinking of three different things right now. I'm thinking, number one, of the situation in Canada where uh, so many Christians have truly bought in to some measure into socialism slash critical theory. Uh, it's just interwoven in 
to the Canadian psyche that the government yeah. is here to help and the government has the philosophy to solve everything. I'm also thinking of a, a just a, a Phil Visser video that I just saw about an hour or two ago where, you know, Phil is talking about how, you know, uh, Christians were on both sides of the slavery issue. You know, you had Christians quoting the Bible on one side and Christians quoting the Bible on the other side. And then, of course, just as you've referenced to Germany, just how when when we read about Bonhoeffer, how divided the church was. And, and my point is this, and I just want you to touch on it, Eric, is that for those of us who are really serious about grabbing hold of our scriptures and applying it to every sphere of life, it's not like we're going to turn around and have a, a band of brothers the way that we envision for a time. It, it, it literally is in this cultural moment, many people stepping out and feeling quite alone and isolated in doing it because this is, it, it, this is the time that we're in where, where much of the church is still going to be fearful or hesitant or deceived. You would have never convinced me 15 years ago that the creator of VeggieTales is going to be an outright promoter of critical theory, and yet he seems to be completely confused by it. And so it's this, it's this, it's this kind of merging back into a place of dialogue where you're kind of getting shot from all from from all areas. And well, I the only thing is that I would say, Mike, is like I think, look, there are good people who are wrong. So when you mention somebody like Phil Vischer, uh, I have no doubt he's deadly wrong on on this in particular. But this is not an evil person. He's somebody I've known for years. He's been persuaded uh, in a certain direction. I, I know he's wrong, but I think we have to be careful too much of engaging and trying to dialogue with people that are they're, they're convinced they're right. I, I think it's it's wiser for us to find people who understand what we know to be true and to link arms with them uh, and to try to gather others uh, to your number. Because I think sometimes trying to have dialogue with people like that, you know, it, it's um, you can be casting pearls before swine, right? In other words, you can be just be spending time doing something and God says, no, 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 no. Just work over here. Don't, don't keep trying to convince people because right now they're not able to be convinced. Those who can be convinced, you know, I've said uh, my book, Letter to the American Church, in many ways, I wrote it hoping people would give it to pastors because I think there are a lot of pastors that they're just confused. They don't know where to turn. They're hearing certain voices. They need to hear what I put in this short book, Letter to the American Church, because I think a lot of them will be convicted and say, you know what? I missed this. I didn't I didn't understand what was at the heart uh, of of uh, critical race theory, whatever this is. First of all, let's be clear. Critical theory um, is cultural Marxism. It is, by definition, atheistic. And it kind of sucks you in a direction. The fruit is not good. Critical theory really undermines the whole concept of is there truth and, and whatever. So the idea that Christians get sucked into this really usually because of white guilt, right? In other words, instead of thinking about what is true, they think, well, I'm white, so I feel guilty. Well, that's not right. God doesn't call you to feel guilty. <laughs> he calls you to do good and to praise his name and to repent if you got something wrong. But this idea that, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm white. And I, that, that's simply not of God. Uh, and that is in its own way, a racial view of the world. It's simply wrong. It's not biblical. But I mean, a lot of people have gotten sucked into that. And so I want to say to those that are on the fence, A, don't get sucked into that. B, stand against it and understand that God will hold us accountable because lives are being destroyed. Look, I believe critical race theory is going to destroy, is destroying the lives of blacks in this country. Now, if I don't speak against it because well, I'm white, who am I? I speak against it because I'm commanded to care about my neighbor. And so my black neighbor will have his community destroyed by critical race theory and by the BLM movement. I will speak against it because God commands me to love my neighbor. And so people will say, well, who am I to talk about this? I'm white or I, I just think, listen, folks, uh, I, I know, uh, killing the unborn is wrong. I, I don't say, well, because I'm not a woman, I have no, this is just sophistry and we have to call it out. It is sophistry. It's designed to silence God's voice, to silence his people, 
uh, who are supposed to be his voice and his hands and his feet in the culture. So when people say you're being political or you're being insensitive, you're being this, you're being that, I just walk away. Once somebody starts pulling that, I know they don't care about the truth. And it's time we have the courage. We need courage to speak uh, at a time when, listen, lives depend on what the church does today. No different than lives dependent on what the church did in Germany in the 30s. When the church said, we're going to sit this one out. We're going to, we don't want to be too vocal. We Romans 13, we're not supposed to be political. When they bought that lie, they allowed evil to triumph and God held them accountable for that. And what happened in Germany is what is happening now in America. You're demonizing certain groups, right? What What's the group that it's safe to demonize? Oh, how about like, white evangelicals if they voted for Trump. Though they're deplorables, they're insurrectionists, they're whatever. Once you start demonizing a group of people and people start nodding like, yeah, those are the bad guys, just as uh, Biden did uh, in that horrible speech he gave three months ago, I thought to myself, that's when you know they don't care about truth. They're demonizing groups of people and they're using social pressure to bully people into silence or into saying, well, I'm not, I'm not with them. You know, it's like when Peter said, you know, I, I never saw the man in my life. I never saw the man, you know, in the cock crows. You deny, you say, I, I, I'm, I'm a good guy. Don't, don't, don't come after me. I'm a good guy. Leave me alone. I'm, I'm fine. I'm innocent. Once you get sucked into that, you've become part of the problem. And trying to silence the church today, that is what many in the church are doing. And many outside the church are using Christian values to kind of, trip up Christians and say, oh, you know, you, you're supposed to be Christian. You're not supposed to talk about politics. You're just supposed to care about souls. I mean, wh- that's not biblical, ladies and gentlemen. Let's be very clear. And, and in the book, Letter to the American Church, I give chapter on verse and verse to clarify this. This is not my opinion. This is biblical. And the people that we admire, like Wilberforce, like Bonhoeffer, they lived this out. They stood against this. We need to stand against it today. And many, I would say most Christian leaders have been silent. And that's why I wrote the book. And they lived it out almost in a, an exact uh, vocabulary that was against them, where in in um, in Wilberforce's day, it was like the economy is dependent upon the slave trade. If, if, if you blow up the slave trade, you blow up the economy, you hurt your fellow neighbor. Don't you love your neighbor? Let's keep the slave trade going. Uh, in, in Bonhoeffer's day, the, the, uh, you had eugenics, the 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 desire to genetically modify the human race. So, so the, the Jew became the scapegoat. Uh, you know, you want to go and protect the Jews? It's the Jews' fault that Germany is where things are at. And so, when we, it's the same race baiting or class baiting yeah. that we're seeing right now. And the church needs to be utterly aware of it and be willing to weed through. And we have to be clear. The deception. It's satanic. We have to be clear. It is satanic. That's right. It is antichrist. It is absolutely satanic. That that knowing wink, like yeah, we know who the bad guys are. Those jerks over there. We can we can demonize that group of people. Look in the pages of Christianity today, back in April, I was astonished, really sickened, uh, to read a piece by Russell Moore, uh, who is now the uh, the editor in chief of Christianity Today, which was you know once was a good magazine, has just gone yeah. dramatically uh, Marxist leftward. And in the piece, he demonizes anyone uh, who either voted for Trump or who is conservative and who lets his politics, uh, sorry, lets his faith inform his politics and is working uh, in the political world or in the culture world. He's de- he, he, in the article, he dismisses them as mere culture warriors. They only care about power. They only care about their own power. And that's not what the gospel is about. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If you advocate for God's purposes in your generation, you're doing God's work. You're living out your faith. But in that article, he demonizes those people. Now, you know, suffice it to say, he wouldn't demonize uh, black churches in the 50s that were advocating for the civil rights movement, right? He would. So he's he's conveniently shifting. He forgets that that was political and it was in the churches and it did great good. He ignores that. So he just talks about, you know, contemporary white evangelicals. They're, you know, these goobers, they shop at Walmart, they're the deplorables. And we all know we're not like them. And he quotes uh, James Davison Hunter, uh, who talked about, um, you know, faithful presence. In other words, we're not supposed to 
actually live out our faith. We just kind of keep our head down and just be faithfully present. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture calls us to proclaim God's truth, to stand against lies. Uh, it's rather different. It's much more than mere faithful presence. And so, again, I, I write about all this in, in the new book, Letter to the American Church, because many Christians have been fooled, and we don't have time to get fooled on this. If we get fooled any longer, if anybody gets sucked along with this false narrative any longer, it's not a biblical narrative, uh, and, and God is, is bringing judgment as a result of this, uh, as a result of our inactivity, of our silence. The judgment is already falling, and unless we repent, it's going to get much, much worse. But I believe, honestly, uh, Mike, that God called me to write th th this new book, Letter to the American Church, um, to, to turn things, to, to help those who might be fooled to say, wait a minute, maybe I missed something. Because uh, it, it's, if we do not see that our silence is parallel to the silence of the German church in the 30s. It is dramatically, and, and again, in the book, I, I lay all this out, but it's like, it's dramatically parallel. It's not just sort of vaguely similar. It's dramatically parallel. The German church gave exactly the same excuses for not speaking up at that time. They, they had it all figured out. They said, Romans 13, uh, we don't want to be political. Or we just want to preach the gospel. We just want to do our little church thing. And you realize, well, God doesn't call you to do your little church thing. He calls you to take your faith out of the church, into the marketplace, into the culture, because strangers depend on you living out your faith. The Jews would have loved it if some of those so-called Christians had lived out their faith in the public sphere. They would have saved the Jews from the hell on earth that they were subjected to. And so that is what happened. It's not like it could have happened. It happened because of exactly the same bad reasoning that many German leaders, a lot of them good people, gave for their silence. By the time they realized what was happening, it was too late. And in this country, we are it is almost too late. And that's why I wrote the book. And by God's grace, he is using it uh, to wake up pastors and to wake up others to understand God holds us accountable. The Lord, this is not like I can sit this one out. I'm just going to I'm not going to be political. I'll let other people. No, no, no. God will hold us accountable just as he held the Christians accountable for those who were enslaved in the African, African slave trade and for the Jews that were put in boxcars and murdered with their families. God holds the church accountable because the church is supposed to believe that Jesus defeated death on the cross. We have no fear. We serve God with our whole lives. We can't be killed. We, we believe that when you kill me, I live forever. If we don't live out our faith that way now, God will judge us as having no faith. And that's a chilling, chilling thing. I write about the concept of faith in the book that, you know, we always say, oh, faith, it's about faith. Faith without works is dead. If you are not living out your faith, the Lord will judge you as having no faith. And that should chill people to their core. Man, you touched on a few things here that I, I want to follow up with. So first of all, I'm really thankful, Eric, that you talked about needing to recognize this as satanic. Um, because I, I think part of the delusion of the church is that there that many people are living like secularists with a little sprinkling of the of Jesus's gospel on top, and so so they're not quite understanding the connection to the to the principalities and then the forces of evil that are that are that are living out this antichrist spirit. And I want to give a plug right now uh, for a friend of mine's movie that just came out called uh, of the Antichrist and his ruin. And it's a, it's a movie that documents this spirit of antichrist that's going across Canada. And Eric, I'd love for you to review the movie and 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 I think it's just right in par with what your book is doing. It's, um, of course, uh, the movie teaches people about uh, John Bunyan's book, uh, The Antichrist and His Ruin. And the movie basically parallels what was going on in Bunyan's time with what's going on within the Canadian culture, just just um, the government becoming more religious in its fervor. It's more secular fervor. It's it's secular religion. And coming and attacking the church. It is absolutely a counterfeit religion. It is absolutely a religion. And we have to be clear about that. Let's stop pretending that it's not religion. It's secular. No, it has become a secular, antichrist, anti-God, anti-biblical religion. We need to understand that's what we're dealing with. 
so I'm really glad that you you drew that out. And then the other thing I was thinking about while you were just talking was, isn't it in- interesting that if you were to go to 10 out of 10 Christians and said, are you, do you think it's important? Do you think ethics are important? And your average Christian would put up their hand and say, of course, I think ethics are important. And you say, okay, well, what, what, what is an ethic? Well, um, I don't know. I don't know. What is an ethic? Ethics is applied morality. Oh, okay. So ethics would be the, the, the manifestation of a moral principle. An ethic is, is, is a manifestation of a moral principle. Okay. Well, how do we get, how do we get ethics implemented in our country? Oh, we do it through politics. So it's just really interesting. I was sitting around with a bunch of guys having a beer the other day and a number of pastors said, you know, whenever I talk politics, people always get so crazy about it. But if you just say, well, aren't ethics important? No Christian argues with that. But isn't it such an interesting disconnect between well, ethics is, and politics? It's just crazy. This is kind of, I mean, in a way, the, the new book letter to the American church um, brings out something that it, it, it's been something we've been allowing. It's the elephant in the living room. We've been allowing this to exist uh, in the church, this lie that our faith is separate from the rest of things. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Our faith is in the one who is truth. So there's no Christian truth. There's just truth. And if something is true, we as Christians are obliged to care about truth. And so the idea that there's this kind of faith world and there's the political world, and I, I just think, where, where are you getting that idea? That's, that's basically, you know, if you want to have that kind of faith, they'll let you have that kind of faith in communist China. You go into your little approved church and do your little weird stuff on Sunday morning. When you come out, you bow to the secular authority of the state. Christian faith is supposed to be all in 24-7 everywhere you are. I mean, in the United States, we have, you know, in our Constitution, it talks about the, the separation of church and state, meaning that we are free to live out our faith without any regard for what the state thinks. The state doesn't get to have an opinion. I get to live out my faith freely in every sphere, in the school, uh, in politics, in culture, everywhere. Supposed to, my, my faith is supposed to bleed out into every part of my life. Many people have adopted this kind of religious view, the safe religious view that we're going to be pious and religious over here, and then we're going to go and play golf and, and in the real world later. It's like, no. then you're a hypocrite. You're not living out your faith. And that lie, honestly, has, uh, it has crippled the church in the West, but it's a lie that uh, when you actually think about it, it is exactly what big state will, they'll say, well, you can, you can do your little thing in that little building. And you think, well, wait a second, I'm supposed to live out my faith. It's supposed to be salt and light everywhere I go. How did I buy into this lie? Now, in, in the book, I talk about how in 1954, LBJ, who was as corrupt a politician as ever lived, uh, he did this thing called the Johnson Amendment, which threatened American churches that you're going to lose your tax exempt status if you say anything political. Well, who's going to decide what's political, right? In other words, th- that's the point is that the people in power in the government, they're going to decide, they're going to threaten you. And many in the church said, oh, okay, all right, yeah, that's that's fair, that's fair. So we get uh, tax-exempt status and we'll keep our mouths shut on politics. Well, how can you possibly do that? I quote over and over um, Abraham Kuyper, the famous Dutch theologian uh, about 140 years ago. He said, there's not one square inch of all creation over which Jesus Christ, who is sovereign, does not say mine. So... No matter it where warms you my look. heart so much, Eric, to hear that you're quoting Piper. The more people that can, the more people Kuiper. that can learn yeah. about Kuiper, the, the better. Like the, the the more people who read and learn about him. So I'm so glad that you're that you're quoting Piper. Okay, I wanted well, I want to transition. I write about in my book quoted th- that quote in almost every single speech, and we need to oh, live yeah. that. We need to understand that is biblical. Sorry, go ahead. No, so I want to transition now to some. Uh, application because you know you've just shared out and we've done a we've done a good job sharing this out a movie put together by Choice Four Two uh, I've interviewed Laura Clausen and it's it's a movie that a short film that they put together it's a it's an animated film called The Procedure and 
um, I want to talk about how one of the tactics that Wilberforce used in order to help people understand the atrocities of the slave trade and how short films like this being put out by by Clausen's group, the procedure are similar and very helpful. And so um, you, you've shared the movie out. What was your let's just talk about the Let's just talk about the short film for a second. The procedure. Well, um, what was your response to the to the to the short film? Well, first of all, the, the, the film titled The Procedure, it's about four or five minutes long, but you know, it, it talks about the reality of abortion. It's animated, but it's like, it's brilliant because anybody who sees that film is going to be knocked sideways. If they were not against abortion, they're going to have a whole different view. So the point is, will we who believe in Jesus, will we share these kinds of things? Will you go and find, look up the procedure, share it on your social media? Will you do that? Because it's going to bless people. It's going to wake them up to something to which they have, many of them, been sleeping. And that's what Wilberforce did. Wilberforce said, Wilberforce said, I know there are good people in England who have no clue what the slave trade is. They know nothing. It happens in another part of the world. They don't, They just aren't familiar with it. It is my job to educate them so that they know what is happening and that they then say, you know what? I didn't know. Now I know I'm against this. This is, this is wrong. I had no idea that my money and my, the laws of my government were supporting this satanic evil against my fellow human beings. I had no idea. There are many good people who have no idea. And, and I know that they don't know because I was once one of those people that didn't know. And when you know, uh, when we educate people and say, listen, I, I, I was once ignorant of this too, but let, let me just, let me just show you, let me, let me show you this. So let me, we need to do that with everything. Not, not just with this great film, the procedure it's, it's very short. People need to find it, the procedure and look it up and share it everywhere. But it's, it's the sort of thing that, you know, if you show it to a teenager, uh, they're going to go, wow. Uh, I didn't realize that that's what happens. Uh, there's no way I'm for that. Well, okay. So that's, that's going to affect who you vote for because today the Democratic Party in the United States is all in for late-term abortion. They didn't used to be. And this is, again, why, you know, when I think of people like my, my friend Tim Keller, uh, when, when he talked about not being political, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it made some sense because there were many in the Democratic Party that were anti-abortion or they had a reasonable view. Today, it's a new world and, and, and things have gone crazy on every subject on this subject, totally crazy where you have people advocating for abortion up to birth. And you, you want to say, could there be anything sicker? Could there be anything sicker than that? And are you, you want to be, you want to be part of that? Are you aware God's going to hold you accountable for that? You want you want to, you want to see what that's about. You want to see what an abortion in the sixth, month looks like much less in the ninth month you want to look at that you're responsible for that when you vote you're responsible and and that's what wilberforce did he would take people down and show them the slave ships can you describe that a little bit for us because i want to just go on to the point i want to move on to that to, to to this point about how um people need to both see the atrocities of abortion and they also need to see life in the womb and so I know that the, the pro-life movement has wisely decided to promote ultrasound equipment, to promote mobile ultrasound units, to, to be able to go and show women their, their, living, their living children. And then at the same time, they're producing these kinds of, of films. Now, I would say that 15 years ago, we were just making an error about neutrality and we hadn't quite seen how evil things could get. And it was still an error back then to say, let's not be political. I, I will agree with you on that, but I think it was more understandable back then. And yeah, absolutely. Was, they, they, they didn't understand what was happening, but when things have gone absolutely loony, most people know things have gone insane. Most people, except for the cultural elites that are insulated, most people look around and go, this is nuts. Men think they can become women. I don't think so. Women think they can become, I, I, I don't think so. Uh, open borders. Uh, this is just not common sense. Defund the police lunacy. So I think a lot of people are kind of looking around and thinking, 
what's the solution? Is anybody willing to speak against the lunacy now that it's gotten this bad? That's where the church is supposed to come in. But uh, let's continue on your point. No, absolutely. So one of the ways is showing. So can you just describe yeah. a little bit about uh, the investment of time and energy that Wilberforce right. brought into showing people the atrocities? Yeah. Well, um, anybody who saw the film Amazing Grace, now my book is called Amazing Grace, William Wilberforce and the Heroic Campaign to End Slavery. Uh, it was not, it was affiliated with the film, but, but the film was not based on my book. But if you've seen the film, uh, and again, a film can only just give you like just a top, top level. I mean, the, the, the stuff that I was able to put in my book about his conversion, his Christian faith and all this other stuff. So I'm, I'm thrilled that God let me write write the book. But in the film, they have a scene uh, where Wilberforce uh, shows these kind of rich elites a slave ship and how horrible it is and whatever. And they're gagging and it's like a nightmare. That to me is an apocryphal thing. It was invented for the film to illustrate the larger point that Wilberforce made it his business to educate the populace. Now, one of the ways he did it was if you uh, have a copy of my book, Amazing Grace, there's a two-page spread in the middle where I show he had uh, an illustration created of the interior of a slave ship. It is one of the most chilling things you'll ever see, how they crammed these human beings together in conditions that are just out of hell. It is utterly hellish. And this was a poster. And this poster was put all over the place. And people maybe couldn't even read, would look at it and go, oh, I didn't know. I had no idea that people are being treated like animals that they're being treated, that they're, they're, they're being put with their children in conditions that are so foul, I can barely talk about it. This picture um, made that come to life. So people couldn't say, oh, I, I didn't know. What do I know? Well, now you know because of a picture. And there were, there were all kinds of efforts. Uh, his, his friend Hannah Moore wrote about it. They wanted to educate people and to say, listen, this is what we are countenancing. We are allowing this to happen if we don't put a stop to this, God is going to judge us. We claim to be Christians. We're not living like Christians if we allow this to happen. And I think that there are many people that, you know, they think they're nice people. But when you show them this, you say, are, are you voting for people that that are OK with this? Are you not voting? Because if you're not voting, then you're obviously OK with this because these people will prevail we have a duty before God to speak for those who have no voice. Uh, we're supposed to be, the church is supposed to be the conscience of the state. Bonhoeffer said the church is the conscience of the state. These are issues that, how do you get around it? Tearing a human being apart limb from limb. Are you okay with that? And when people say, oh, just be quiet, you're being political. Well, maybe I'm being political, but if I am silent, God will judge me for my silence. This episode has also been brought to you by Rocklink Investment Partners. with. Inflation at a 40-year high and economic stagflation on the horizon, growing and preserving your hard-earned capital is of utmost importance. Rocklink Investment Partners understand the investment challenges of today. Rocklink is an independent investment management firm focused solely on creating portfolios of high-quality businesses. Anchored to the time-tested principles of value investing and not shy away from essential businesses that do not meet the world economic form definition of ESG. So email rocklink with a C at info at rocklink.com or visit them at www.rocklink.com. That's rocklink with a C.com. Just out of left field, I want you to know, Eric, I would absolutely love to do a conference with you sometime, figuring out how we could invite uh, an, an audience to hear more of uh, your lecturing. I, I, I think it's just so helpful. I want to thank you for your for your hard historical work, and I want to thank you for uh, you know contextualizing these issues. And my, my heart is right with you. Uh, you know when. When Roe v. Wade was overturned in the United States, our prime minister the next day tweeted out that Canada would be a safe haven for women who wanted to come and murder their babies in Canada. Like, come to Canada to kill your children. 
And of course, in Canada, there is no abortion law. There is no abortion law at all. Children in Canada can be aborted up to the day uh, that they are born. And we've actually got a number of court cases on the docket talking about, you know, a potential pre uh, post birth uh, abortion. And so this this evil just does not stop. And so when you were saying, can you imagine, can you imagine? I'm like, yes, I can imagine. My prime minister called Americans to come across the border at a time when, when the, when, you know, when the unvaccinated have a hard time traversing the borders, come up to murder your babies. Well, listen, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, put out billboards quoting scripture I to know. justify coming to So listen, I, I just want to be clear. God is a judge. People should fear the judgment of God. If you are silent on these issues, folks, I'm just telling you, this is clear. This is clear stuff. God judges us for our silence, for our cowardice. I mean, one of the the, the last, uh, the second last page in scripture talks about the cowardly will be cast into the lake of fire. The cowardly. In other words, if you are afraid to speak up for your faith, then God knows you actually have no faith. Because the reason you have faith is to live out your faith. And so I I think we have to be clear. God is a judge and he exhorts us and exhorts us and exhorts us to do what is right. But in the end, if we don't say, yes, Lord, thy will be done, he says to us, thy will be done. I'll let you have it your way and you will never be with me, not in eternity. And you need to think about that. If we're not living out our faith, we have no faith. Uh, That's what the scripture says. I mean, the title of the book is Letter to the American Church, but I was going to title it Faith Without Works is Dead, because that is where we are. That is the the issue now um, before the church. Will you live out your faith? People all around the world are dying for their faith. Will you live out your faith now, or will you do what the German church did and reap a a whirlwind that you, you cannot even imagine? I simply believe God called me to write this book uh, as a warning uh, and in, in another way to inspire people to step away from their fear and to say, no, 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 I'm going to do what God called me to do. I was born to do what God called me to do. I want to be his voice. I want to be living out my faith. That's the glorious adventure to which God calls us. It's a beautiful thing. And to miss it is a nightmare. So the choice should be easy. And during this Christmas season, of course, we've, we're all sitting under preaching uh, during Advent. And of course, I, I was just reminded this week of the, the, the beautiful, faithful response of Mary, let it be done to me as, as you've said, and the angel Gabriel telling her this very difficult journey ahead of her. I I actually like how the nativity, the movie, the nativity really picks up on the, the gospel narratives about just how difficult it would have been for Mary to live that journey whereby she's, you know, fleeing to Elizabeth for, some wisdom and counsel and understanding because she's now going to be with child with, without a husband. Then she's got the difficulty of telling Joseph. Then you've got the journey of traveling through the pregnancy and the shame of all of that to, to a world that could not even understand it unless by faith. And, and, and Mary said, let it be done to me. And so I appreciate your call to the American church saying, let's fear God, the judge, let's, let's be ethical. Let's be political. Let's be, let's be truthful and let it be done to us, Lord. And, 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 and and here's the transitional thought, Eric, just to finish this off. You talked about Wilberforce being a a positive ending uh, where, where he saw the change. And I'd like, I, I, because I'm inside and enjoying that book right now, I'd like to finish off our discussion on that victory. Uh, Bonhoeffer is someone who we follow and encourage despite the outcomes, but Wilberforce was a celebration story. Can you, can you just finish off with a few minutes for our listeners about how it ended for Wilberforce and how emancipation of slavery came about uh, near the end of his life? Well, what's interesting is, you know, if you do the right thing before God, you have no idea uh, how beautiful it's going to be. It, it's not just one thing. It can lead to other things and other things and other things and other things. Um, similarly, when you do the wrong thing, it can lead to a spiral of evil that you cannot imagine. And so we have 
each of us an, an outrageous responsibility the Lord has given us. We're created in his image. So Wilberforce, in his faithfulness, and if you if you read my book, Amazing Grace, obviously um, I, I talk about this, but the the battle to end the slave trade was settled in 1807. Huge battle, took almost 20 years, and he, they win in 1807. But he goes on from there to realize we need to abolish slavery itself. And on his deathbed, this is like out of a movie. It's not in the movie, which is why I hope people will read my book. But in the book, Amazing Grace, I talk about how at the three days before he dies, um, he is told on his deathbed that slavery was just abolished. Not the slave trade. That was 1807. Now, 1833, slavery was abolished by parliament. He's told on his deathbed, uh, he slips into a coma and a, a, a little bit more than a day later, he goes to see Jesus. So what he did led to the abolition of slavery itself, but that's only the beginning. Everything he did had a ripple effect uh, in the British empire so that the Christian faith experienced a tremendous renaissance and Christian values all through, we call it the Victorian era, right? Famous for its morality, famous for, you know, uh, women forming groups to help the indigent poor and to help this group and that group. It became the thing to do. It became a beautiful thing that led to the Salvation Army being formed. It led to all kinds of things. He changed the whole culture. He didn't just win a battle in parliament and then win another battle in parliament. No, he changed the whole culture was suffused with Christian mercy and love. And it, it's something that many of us today, uh, we're, we're standing on the shoulders of those giants because we, we kind of take it for granted. Like, oh yeah, we're supposed to care about the poor. Where'd you get that idea, folks? Where'd you get the idea you're supposed to care for the poor? Because we, the world used to not care about the poor. Churches didn't care about the poor. Wilberforce dragged these ideas into the mainstream of culture and today, everybody in the West knows, oh, I'm supposed to care about the poor. Even atheists know. I don't know why they think they should care about the poor. If you believe in survival of the fittest and you believe in you know, blind Darwinian evolution and materialism, it makes no sense. But they all kind of have imbibed these Christian values. It started with Wilberforce. And it's an amazing story of victory. And I really believe that if a handful of us are faithful now, we can see that kind of a sea change in our culture because things were extremely bad in the England of Wilberforce. When he started out, you think things are bad here? Things were worse there. And by the grace of God over the decades, God gave them the victory and changed that whole culture. So uh, anybody who has lost hope, I want to say it's not your business to lose hope. God calls you to the battle. He calls you to fight to be joyful, to praise him in the midst of the battle, he'll decide what happens. But the question is, do we just do what he called us to do? And so I, I wrote this last book letter to the American church as an exhortation to people who are a little confused about this to say, no, 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 don't be confused. And especially, I mentioned for Christian pastors, give a copy to a pastor who doesn't get this because they need to get this. And if they don't get it, you need to find another church because we're living in dire times. We need to take this really seriously. God is looking to his people. We are the church. He's looking to us to stand up and to do what he's called us to do and not go down the evil path that the German church went down. We are going down that evil path right now. That's why I wrote this book. I believe God wants to pull us out of that and he will by his grace, but many, many, many um, Christians have to cooperate. They have to get what they don't yet get. So that's why I wrote it. So everybody, we have some application points here. Number one, uh, go out and buy Eric's new book. Uh, Eric, I'm, I am glad that you're shamelessly promoting it and talking so passionately about it, especially now that I know that it's it, it, it's drawing so much from Bonhoeffer and Wilberforce because, again, I've so enjoyed those biographies. So thank you very much. Everybody go out and buy Eric's book. Eric, I am sincerely asking you to review the movie Antichrist and His Ruin. It's not officially released yet. We released it at a conference up in Canada. I would really appreciate it if you would review send, that. Can you send me send me a I link? Will. Uh, we'll send, we'll send you, you some stuff. Our, our emails. Send me the link so I can watch it. Yeah. 
Yeah, because again, this kind of traces the, 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 some of the, what we've been talking about uh, in, in Canada specifically. And so um, everybody, I just want to promote that film when it comes out. It's going to be coming out in a number of days of Antichrist and His Ruin. Um, I, I, yours truly gets to be a little bit in the film. Uh, I think I could crack a joke. I think that's the only time they could quote me. But then number three, would you go out and share this video so that more people are, are tracking with this conversation? We've talked about Laura Clausen's movement, cho uh, Choice 4-2. We've talked about Eric's new book. We talked about these these biographies that are available on audible or they're available in print. I'm going through the audible version. You know, my kids and I are jumping in the car for eight hours and to get through one of Eric's books in eight hours is, you know, just, it just makes the drive go crazy, really easy. And you're, and, and you're learning so much. So those three things, folks, uh, buy Eric's new book, go and listen to this uh, film, Antichrist and His Ruin, and we just share this video out because we really do need to wake people up. Eric, I'm so thankful that you've come on the show now twice. I'm going to be audacious and invite you a third time after 